that we have actually kept to a weekly schedule like i was listening to the teaser a few days ago and oh, we were <laughs> yeah <laughs> and <Suck> we good. <laughs> and we were talking about how this was probably it was intended to be a weekly podcast sometimes bi-weekly maybe monthly yeah, it was like i think prob- that was- probably monthly <laughs> <laughs> and we've actually kept up so this is a victory lap for us a little bit yeah people who like i i've had like friends and family come up to me and actually give us compliments and be like it we're kind of impressed that you've been able to keep it up and keep <laughs> it going this is the only thing that i've done every week for the last <laughs> genuinely <laughs> this is i've more... done this podcast more times than i've done laundry this year oh i was gonna say this is more dedication than i've put into homework over my entire career <laughs> as a student high school middle school college yeah so, so this is kind of a special episode this week um, because we wanted to bring y'all some of our favorite moments since we started doing this at the beginning of August, right? Our first episode was like that, like that first week, I think. Yeah, so we've been at it for like five months yeah. almost. Yeah. And that's awesome. And we've had some really great guests and some really hilarious moments a lot of the times by accident. Yeah. And so, yeah, we thought we'd do a little bit of a Tipping Pitches 2017 reunion tour yeah best Uh, of get the band back together (laughs) we hope that y'all enjoy the next about hour or so um and you can obviously follow along online and we will link back to all the old you know all the old full episode pages and everything so if you do want to go back and listen to the whole thing feel free to yeah we definitely encourage you to do that and if you think that there's something we missed too if you happen to have a favorite tipping pitches moment let us know and uh and i don't know we'll shout you out or just put it in the podcast or something we'll probably do that uh enjoy the next little bit we are going to kick it off with a throwback all the way back to episode three, which I can't believe was episode three. I know. Uh, the all asshole team. Yeah, this was a good one. This was like our first like big idea where we were like, hey, we actually have something to talk about besides, wow, Bryce Harper, he's a, he's a good home run hitter, isn't he? It's a, <laughs> it's a good thing that we're doing this episode um, and like canonizing it because if we didn't, then this uh, episode three, the all asshole team might have just like died a long time ago and been buried because like no one was listening to us at that point no one was listening but i don't know i thought this was a pretty good idea (laughs) this was we had a lot of fun going through this one yeah it was like we got delirious at the end so um we're just gonna give you i think my favorite moment and i think the moment that emblemized the uh the episode the most when we uh when alex read off the infamous john rocker quote so uh enjoy Yeah. Jonathan Pavlon checks all the boxes. He's like the prime candidate. He's exactly who I had in my mind when we were making this list. That's right. And he was the first person who came to my mind. Um, but I did a little more digging, um, and I was looking around for that perfect guy. John Rocker, I don't know if you know 
about John Rocker, and I didn't even really know very much about him, but it seems like he's pretty well known as being an asshole. Again, I know we've been doing a lot of reading on the show, but I'm just going to read you a quote from him that he said about New York City. You know, sometimes they say it better than we ever could. <laughs> That's so true. Um, caveat, he most definitely would have been an alt-right guy were he, like, I, he's still alive. This is, <laughs> he played, like, uh, like in the early 2000s, late 90s, so maybe he is an alt-right guy. Um, let me read you this quote about why he said he never wanted to play for the Yankees or the Mets because, you know, he didn't want to be in New York City. It's the most hectic, nerve-wracking city. Imagine having to take the seven train to the ballpark, looking like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, right next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. It's depressing. The biggest thing I don't like about New York are the foreigners. You can walk an entire block in Times Square and not hear anybody speaking English. Asians and Koreans and Vietnamese and Indians and Russians and Spanish people and everything up there. How the hell did they get in this country? Mike drop. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. Me neither. Papelbon looks like a saint. <laughs> oh my god. In one fell swoop, he checked all those boxes. Like, most of these guys have, like, accrued a career of assholery. And he just, right out the gate, he was like, nah. <laughs> I'm going to offend everyone. Oh, he said, shots fired. He said, well, hold my beer. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't even know if I have anything more to say on him. No, that's that's enough. John, give John, it a wrap. I'm scared of where this could go if we go any further on him. Yeah, that's true. That was good. I forgot how funny that was. <laughs> uh, John Rocker, endless content. If he was around in 2017, endless content. Yeah. And uh, we actually we actually talked to the guy later on who um, who got that quote from him. So you'll hear from him a, li- a bit later on. But um, This next one is from episode six. It's, uh, it's based off an article from Jay Adande in The Undefeated. Um, just talking about how there was there's been a decline of base ceiling that's uh, been coupled with the decline of black players in baseball, and it was a short article and it was really interesting, um, and we had a good talk about it and we just talked about you know what we miss about base ceiling, and the different implications um, of the lack of black players in the game right now. Yeah, it's really interesting to just kind of look at how we look at electrifying players and and who those players are to to which we gravitate um and so yeah this was a really good conversation i think so he like goes into sort of a cursory analysis of this i'm sure someone could take a very 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 deep dive on this um he throws out some statistics um just about like the percentage of black baseball players for it peaked there for a while, it was like eighteen percent, and now it's down to like seven. I think was the number that I remember. So I just wanted to get your take on this. Like, when you're watching the game, like, are you noticing that there's not a lot of aggressive base running? Like, is it something that is pervasive to your fan experience slash your game watching experience, where you're like, I'm not really seeing a lot of people stealing bases right now. Like, is it something that bothers you? Do you not care? There's obviously a bigger issue here, right? Is that like black participation in baseball is dwindling like that is what this article is getting at but i'm just talking about simply like the style of baseball like is that something you notice 
I think it is. I mean, obviously, it's all anecdotal, right? And he pulled up these graphs. I think it's something that you do kind of notice when you look at it. And he this really simple year-by-year graph of when stolen bases peaked and when uh, African-American participation in baseball peaked. And it was literally the exact same time. I mean, it it was around the like mid 1980s early 90s right when guys like Ricky Henderson were playing and i think it is kind of something that you notice a little bit when you're watching the game he mentions that the um the statistical revolution the data revolution kind of discourages uh, stolen bases because they're not as worth it right and you know i mean we've ta- we've mentioned it before that i mean everyone has mentioned it before the baseball is moving more towards those three two true outcomes right we have a lot of home run hitters and a lot of guys who strike out a lot and a lot of guys who walk and that's fun everyone likes to see Giancarlo stanton hit the ball 500 feet obviously he's gonna hit 63 home runs this year and it's amazing and i'm somehow all... this turned into a Giancarlo stanton segment <laughs> i'm <laughs> just like i turned into the the verlander thing into a Syndergaard segment <laughs> I'm all for that, but there's something about that scrappy style of play that makes it so much more fun to watch. Um, guys like uh, Juan Pierre, uh, Rajay. Oh, Juan Pierre was so fun. Juan Pierre is amazing. Rajay Davis. I mean, it's really interesting. Just like looking since like 2000, all the guys who are atop that stolen bases leaderboard are black, right? I mean, it's like Pierre and then Ichiro and then like Jose Reyes and Carl Crawford and Jimmy Rollins and Rajay David. I mean, Carl Crawford, man, what happened? I know, throwback. But it really is, I think it is something that you kind of noticed a little bit. I mean, like when we were at the Mets game earlier this year and we mentioned, oh, Jacob deGrom just stole a base. He has as many as most of the rest of the Mets right now. <laughs> yeah, I think I, th- I think what you said is true. Like, I think it's something that I notice while I'm watching. Whenever I see a stolen base, I'm like, oh, this is something you can do. Yeah. I like kind of remember that that's a thing that you can do. Like, the lead and like the casual pickoff towards first base is almost just like routine now. And like, no one even thinks about it anymore. And like, I feel like this is sort of like an area that can still be exploited in a way. Sure, like the analytics say stealing a base and getting caught is obviously not worth it. You're just giving an out away. It's hard to steal a base, steal bases effectively and still have it add win probability to your team, you know? But I think, like, it does more than just add win probability. Like, depletes a player's confidence. Like, it depletes the pitcher's confidence. Like, I watched it happen to my team. Like, the 2015 World Series. It was in the back of the Mets pitcher's heads that someone was going to steal or, like, they were going to put on a hit and run. And, like, you can't really quantify that. The Mets pitchers were not getting as many swings and misses. Like, they were walking more guys. Like, it, that was not the same pitching staff that I saw throughout the whole playoffs. And, like, I'm sure fatigue played into that. But you can't underestimate what stealing bases does to a pitcher's psyche. This is still an area that can be exploited, almost like to buck the analytical trend in a way. But I think a lot of it is not being exploited just because, like, he made the point. There's just not as many black baseball players. I mean, I think that there's a reason why you could argue that Ricky Henderson was maybe the most fun player to watch on, like, a day-in and day-out basis. I would argue that he is the probably the most fun player that you could watch um, just because you know what's coming and you know that he's going to go out there and wreak havoc. And that's why a guy like Billy Hamilton is 
so valuable, right? Because you know every single is going to be a double. And he's going to go out there and he's going to cause some trouble. He's going to put players like Yadi or Molina to the test, right? These gold glove guys who they're like, oh, no one runs on me. And then someone goes out there and he's like, actually, like, I can beat you. And that's fun because it adds, you know, more element of competition. And it's like that bang, bang play. I don't know. One of my favorite things in all sports, baseball included, is when someone tells you what they're going to do and then does it. Yeah. And that's what base that's what base stealers are. It's like, you know Billy Hamilton's going to steal. Or you know Ricky Henderson was going to steal first and then steal third. Yeah. Like, when was the last time you saw someone hit a single, steal second, and then steal third? And have the same batter be up and no outs and man on third just by hitting a single up the middle. Like, I, I can't even tell you the last time I saw that. It's been years since I was watching a baseball game and I saw that happen. I just, it's very fun to watch the mind games of base stealing. Um, and I think it's the art side of baseball. It's not necessarily the math side of baseball. It's just kind of a lost art in a way. Like there was that really great article written by Jonah Carey back when Grantland was still a thing, RIP, where he just sat down with Coco Crisp and just talked about the art of base stealing. And, you know, he he worked in analytics because that's who Jonah Carey is. And when you're writing about baseball in 2017 or whenever this was written, 2015, you kind of have to work in the analytics side. But mostly what the article was about was just Coco Crisp picking up signs from the pitcher, not literally stealing signs, but just like seeing little like leans one way or the other way or trying to steal when he comes into the full when the full leg kick as opposed to the slide step. And I just think that's so compelling. Like it's not just zeros and ones and zeros and ones and zero zero one one like things like that. It's not just like robot baseball. Yeah, it's it's part of the it's one of the more nuanced parts of baseball because there's so many little details that are required for you to make it yourself a successful base stealer, right? You have to look for when his leg starts to go up and is he coming to the plate? Is he going towards first? I mean, you know, what is he doing? And when batters start to like, you know, time the pitcher, that sort of thing, read where, I mean, that's so much fun to watch. So this next segment that we have on um, is from episode eight. And this one was pretty close to home for me. And it was a conversation that we had about the A's stadium site and the decision of where their upcoming stadium would be built. And we go into a little bit about what the implications are for where different stadiums are built and kind of what trends in the MLB are in terms of like the downtown stadium and and what that means for the people who it affects and and what the the best situation for a stadium looks like. Yeah, I think my favorite part about this was just that it really intersects with all the things that you and I care about. And, you know, you study metropolitan studies. I study American studies. You know, we talk a lot about race and poverty and, and gentrification and how these things affect. So the fact that it could come over to baseball, it's pretty rare, I feel like. And so this was a really, I think, enriching conversation for us. Yeah, we definitely don't stick to sports. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, In other news. Shifting from that a little bit, a little news out of Oakland. Yeah. A's announced that they uh, they finally have their location for their new ballpark. It's going to be on the uh, right next to Laney College, um, which is a community college in Oakland. It's going to be where a lot of the school's like administrative offices are right now. Okay, so you're from Oakland. Take me through your feelings about this. Take me through this area. What is it like now? And what is it going to look like after the stadium hits here? Like, what is this going to displace and what is this going to change about that community? So they they had 
narrowed it down to three options. And I think that the, the word coming out was that Laney College was always kind of their favorite because it's like downtown Oakland. It's right next to Lake Merritt. Um, it's like this pretty beautiful area. And so when you think of like the downtown ballpark, like that's kind of probably what the A's were really going for. It's you know, somewhat classically Oakland. I know that the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaff, was pulling for this Howard Terminal thing, which is kind of in, in similar to how the Giants AT&T Park is like on the water right there. This is like right by this, um, this like port. It's like right on the water, um, but it also probably would have taken twice as long to clean up and get the permits and, and that sort of thing. So I was kind of pulling for that just because there's less there right now. This Laney College area, there are actually like people living there, right? I mean, there's a lot of immigrant communities right around there and like businesses and that sort of thing. And so I think that their decision to pick this raises a lot of questions about what are they going to do to mitigate that displacement, right? And whenever there is a situation like this where there is this big, massive complex that's like coming in and essentially transplanting itself into a community you have to kind of look at what is this going to do to the people who already live there, right? And so they've been doing a lot of community outreach, and it's hard to tell, like, how much of that is, like, just kind of PR and how much of that is, like, legitimate concern. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn on this location specifically just because I'm kind of worried about what it's going to do to the people who live around there. And it also puts some pressure on the city then to enact, like, safeguards to avoid displacement and gentrification and, you know, all the things that will probably inevitably follow after the stadium is built. Definitely follow. Yeah. First and foremost, it's a privately funded stadium Mm -hmm. and that's a good place to start. Publicly funded stadiums are some of the stupidest ideas that I've ever seen in my life. And also stupid from like a moral perspective, of course, because why why would the government who is funded by the people of that area give money so that like some white billionaire can get richer? And then also like even stupid from like a if you're a hardcore capitalist perspective, why would the people have to give up their money so that the private sector can get richer? Like why would public funds go towards that? That's just not a very that idea doesn't fit in any economic system that's not just like completely morally bankrupt and corrupt. No. When the Oakland Raiders came to Oakland back from Los Angeles and demanded that the city build this stadium, right? The stadium where they uh, are right now, it was uh, publicly funded, right? And the city of Oakland is going to be paying it off long uh, after the Raiders, the, after like, the Raiders jumped, leave. Yeah, yeah, they jump ship like they're out of town. So yeah. I think first and foremost, it's a good thing that it is privately funded as all stadiums and construction that benefits only private citizens should be. One other thing I want to note about that before you make your other point, because I, I know you have one, but it's it's privately funded, but there's more to it than that because it's going to require infrastructure change around the stadium itself, which would not be privately funded. So it's going to require some the city to throw in, you know, millions of dollars towards this infrastructure change um, to accommodate like transit, um, access to uh, BART, which is like, you know, the, the city's subway. Yeah. Um, and That's so funny. <laughs> what a funny name for a subway system. I know. Don't call it the BART either. It's just BART. You take BART. You're not taking the BART. That's like you guys do the BART as opposed to like we do the subway. And then we do, 
you're going to drive on 95 and you guys do like you're going to drive on the 101. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's so weird that those are freeways. <laughs> people who are not from the anyway, east or west coast. Now we're just like nerding out about <laughs> <laughs> different minor uh, transit systems. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing to note is that like the, the stadium itself is privately financed, but there are infrastructure changes that will require some public money. And that's another thing that I know that was going to happen at any site, but I don't know. It makes it makes me a little wary, certainly. Anytime you like introduce a new massively constructed like tourist building or like tourist center or anything that a baseball stadium would fall under the category of, it's concerning because in theory, like the city could just knock out anything that they were thinking about building there that might be beneficial to like the people that already live there. So in an ideal world, like if you're going to introduce a new stadium to an area, you should have to make like a law um, or like some kind of regulation that says like, we don't decrease the amount of like publicly funded housing that's in this area. Or like this will not dramatically shift the demographics of the people who are living here one way or the other. But like, there's no way that you can predict all of that. I don't think like the government of New York City was thinking when they were like approving the Barclays Center that they were just going to like gentrify all of Brooklyn, you know, <laughs> like when they were like, yeah, let's like revolutionize Williamsburg. I didn't I don't think that they anticipated like you and me now living in Bushwick and going to NYU, <laughs> you know. So I think there's like a domino effect that can be had. So it'll be interesting to watch over the next. When is the stadium going to be like ready in theory? They're aiming for 2023, which is kind of a long timeline, honestly. But but part of it is like they still don't have those permits, right? They need to convince the Peralta Community College like district, um, and they need to get some permits from the city. And so e- that alone is going to take a couple years before they even break ground. Yeah, so we won't even see like the effects of this for a long, long time. But hopefully, like they actually do take the real steps that they need to like secure the minority populations in the area and the people that are actually like living there and didn't ask for this like a lot of people probably didn't ask for this and don't want this i know i would not want to live next door to city field that would not be fun no but i mean we'll see there's the whole thing in like la with the stadium that Cronky is building and he's kind of a controversial figure but in theory that's supposed to be like uh like an economic center now What, what stadium is that so he's building a new stadium for the rams after he moved them from St. Louis, like he had this huge plot of land in, I believe, Inglewood, and that's where they're building the new stadium. And supposedly, it's going to be like a gigantic, you know, NFL-sized arena, but also like office buildings and housing units, and it'll be like the center of like the NFL TV and like media group. So like they're turning it into more than just a literal stadium that sits dormant for nine months out of the year or seven months out of the year um with the exception of like big venue concerts which there's like six of them in a year it's just like there is no way to make this economically make sense other than the fact that they like scalp the hell out of you like when you're like buying stuff at the stadium you know that being said like he's saying that all of these things will come but in in actuality like it's probably going to be like high rent housing units and it's probably going to be like really nice luxury condos and stuff like that like i don't think it's going to be like publicly funded housing or like i don't think it's going to be like projects you know no because you know i mean and there's a deeper discussion to be had here but like 
That's because whenever you, you want to quote unquote revitalize an area, you know what you don't do is you don't put poor people there, right? Yeah, and because people, you're, how are you getting more money out of that? Yeah, exactly. You want uh, restaurants. You want, you know, I mean, you look at uh, Wrigleyville in Chicago, right? And all of that is um, different ways that these businesses have found a way to make money off of you know, the stadium that's right there. And so I think that's what every sports team kind of dreams of because you create this whole environment and this whole neighborhood that is solely based off fandom and because people buy into it. Yeah, I think like revitalizing an area is just like code word for like recreating Atlantic Avenue. (laughs) Yeah. And like that's not really a good thing for anybody except people who make like $100,000 a year, so. Yeah, so that's why I was pulling for the Howard Terminal site. It's like on the water, and there's not a lot there right now. Now, again, Libby Schaff wanted that because she wanted to, quote-unquote, revitalize the area. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's largely revitalize like— Revitalize is such a safe word in politics, but it also know, is a very coded word. Yeah. I, a lot of that is more kind of like abandoned land that isn't really being used for anything right now. And that's what Inglewood is right now. Like yeah. that he's had this plot of land for a very, very long time, but like that's not traditionally what Inglewood was. Like Inglewood was a place where like a lot of lower income black families lived. So next up, episode nine, um, our favorite beat writer james wagner for the new york times the mets beat writer for them um he did a story about how wilmer flores and other spanish-speaking players use the tv show friends to um to learn english and to acclimate themselves to american culture to united states culture and we just talked about that and we talked about how cool and and how important beat reporting is for you know finding a story like this so um, yeah, just a bit about that story and a bit about uh, about how hard it is to be a Spanish speaking player in MLB and to try to, you know, learn English while you're also trying to learn to hit the curveball. And it really dovetails with other stuff we talk about in terms of representation in all facets of the game and how important it is to open up these avenues for players and how important it is to give players the opportunity to really get acclimated to the environment in the United States. So I thought this was a really fascinating article that you really wouldn't get if it weren't for beat writers. Pay them. Um, Yeah, what these guys will do is watch the show uh, in English, but with Spanish subtitles on, and you know, which is a pretty good way to like start to learn a language, especially when you're doing what these guys are doing and coming home and watching it every night, right? I mean, it's this classic American TV show, and just kind of by association and looking at what at the words on the screen and hearing what they're saying, you start to kind of figure out, um, you know, colloquial terms and and what this common parlance is, and I, it's just it's just this really fascinating way that um, this kind of cultural legacy, this piece of American television, has translated over into this new era and taken on a whole different meaning for players who are kind of trying to assimilate more and more into American culture. I think it's really fascinating. I think we don't talk a lot about like how hard it is to come from your country and try to be like have these cameras in your face all the time and and now with like beat reporters with their smartphones just like with a smartphone like this close to your face all the time and um 
and just how hard that is to like uh, say the right thing like and to not have a moment that can turn into like a 10 second clip of you being pissed off like I think so much of what we talk about with guys like young hotheads like Yasiel Puig like imagine what it must be like to come from Cuba and like not really speak English that well and then be thrust into the spotlight of Los Angeles and to have like a online campaign for you to make the all-star game after like 40 games of your rookie season. Yeah. And not have a ton of institutional support either in terms of like, uh, like making that transition, right? Oh, here's your um, personal English tutor, right? Who will help you um, find ways to, uh, you know, figure X, Y, and Z out about American culture, or whatever. You're largely on your own when you come over here and forced to kind of make this quick adaptation. Yeah, and and another thing that we don't talk about is how important it is to have other Spanish speakers in in the locker room, like or on the team at all. Like, and one of the things many a Mets fan has taken frustration with this year is that Esdrubal Cabrera hasn't been traded, but by all accounts, Esdrubal Cabrera is like that not fa- not father figure per se. But he's like that good clubhouse guy. He speaks Spanish. He can tie everyone together because he's a positive guy around the locker room. And he can speak to them. He can speak to other younger players or just other players in general, like Wilmer Flores, um, like Ahmed Rosario, who they just called up, in their native language. And like we talked about that a little bit with Ichiro, is that he wants to speak his native language just because he has the right to do that. And just like any Spanish-speaking player does uh, in dugouts, all around the United States. And I think that's something that we just underrate in terms of like, you know, this guy doesn't seem like a good teammate. Well, maybe that's because he doesn't know how, like he just doesn't know how to say what he wants to say to his teammate. And then um, you kind of get like, when you don't know a language, you get stage fright from what you want to say. Like you repeat it in your head over and over and over and over again. And you like rehearse it. And then when you go to say it, like it just doesn't come out the way you wanted it to. So maybe like, it's just it's literally just lost in translation uh the way that we interview people um and i know a lot of the times you see like a translator next to someone while they're being interviewed like cespedes uses a translate uh translator i don't know man it's it's got to be hard to know that every day you come into the clubhouse and there's an expectation that you should be getting better at english when you don't necessarily need that like you wouldn't have needed that if this team didn't want you to leave your home country and come play for them yeah and you know there are some major leaguers who will end their big league career still not having a full grasp on that language and you know there's a longer conversation to be had around this but you then after that are essentially kind of left out on your own right you don't have that um once you retire you don't have that support group you're in this country that you really didn't exactly spend a whole lot of time exploring and getting to know because you were focused on this singular thing, right? Yeah. You don't just get to like walk around to a coffee shop like and try to and just test out your English ordering stuff because like you're a famous athlete. Like you can't just walk into a Starbucks yeah and live your life. Yeah. And I know that I the article says that some players will receive some English instruction. But again, that's like very basic stuff, right? And what Flores even says in the article is that like, yes, you can learn like the basics in the classroom. But a show like Friends uh, does a really good job of um, teaching you how to like speak in the clubhouse and, and on the street or stuff. anything like that. Yeah. It's, exactly. Yeah. Um, another thing that I take specific issue with is like pundits or fans or just racist people in general getting angry about a player not learning English and not being able to give interviews in English. Like 
don't be so hypocritical. Like you try working a full-time job and then coming home at night and learning a new language. Like it's not easy. Like try working a full-time job in that language that you're trying to learn yeah. and then come home and still try to learn it, right? Exactly. That doesn't necessarily mean you learn it faster because like a lot of this stuff can just go totally over your head. Like I spent 4 months in Italy studying abroad and Whoa, I wanted Oh, you're so cultured. You're so annoying. <laughs> And I wanted to learn the language. I wanted to learn it bad. And I like mentally in my head, everywhere I went, tried to learn like a new phrase, a new thing. And I came back here and I still have like an, like an elementary school level of it, like less than that, you know? So, and all I was doing was going to school and like eating a shit ton of pizza. <laughs> so I could not even imagine going over there and playing like a professional sport and having to learn the language. Like I just have so much respect for the guys in this piece who are like taking it to another level and like watching a show and and like having the the energy and the effort to like care enough to like learn this language and want to do this like that's so dope that's just so respectable yeah. oh totally uh, and there's a great line in this piece that says for at least one generation of americans friends endures as a cultural touchstone a glowing chunk of 1990s amber but its runaway popularity stretched far beyond the united states and for some Latino uh, baseball players, it is something more. A language guide, a Rosetta Stone disguised as six twenty-somethings commingling in a Manhattan apartment. I love that. That's I love nice. that image. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. So this next one uh, is pretty fitting because the studio is smelling very much of that good good right now. <laughs> This um, is really confusing if you don't know what the next one is going to be. But anyway, the studio that we record in is in the basement of a freshman dorm. So every once in a while, the ventilation just pipes in a little bit of marijuana into this, the scent of marijuana into the studio. Yeah, and it's fitting because one of uh, our favorite segments that we have, I think, ever done is <laughs> the one where we talk about Wiz Khalifa throwing out the first pitch at a Pirates game. <laughs> And really just pissing off all of Major League Baseball because they had no idea how much he loved weed or something like that. Um, this was, I think, just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I mean, we were dying when we were reading this. Yeah, so uh, we hope that you found it as funny as we did. So the other day, Wiz Khalifa, the Pirates brought in Wiz Khalifa, noted rapper musician from pittsburgh and marijuana enthusiast and I pittsburgh think stan. i think it's fair to say and, yeah. and pittsburgh stan, yes but i feel like he, he has a song called black and yellow he does have a song called black and yellow that's about pittsburgh okay he loves pittsburgh does he wait but i would say if there's one thing he loves more than pittsburgh you could argue you could make the case it's probably cars that have pushed to start oh nice yeah there we go um he the point is he he likes his weed. Yeah. He he likes his weed. He likes to roll one up. As <laughs> <laughs> He has a song called Roll Up. Yeah. I mean, he has an album called Rolling Papers. <laughs> <laughs> he likes weed. Oh, he's working on Rolling Papers too. So What? In case you weren't sure. This is news to me. Oh yeah. We're a music podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> music and academics. Anyway, Wiz Khalifa, the <laughs> I love Wiz Khalifa so much. Anyway, Wiz Khalifa, the other day, Pirates brought him in to throw the first pitch. Now, one would think that if you are aware of Wiz Khalifa, you're also aware of his enthusiasm 
for smoking weed. Apparently, we clearly are. I mean, it's not like we did investigative reporting on Wiz Khalifa. He makes it pretty obvious. Apparently, the MLB was not aware of this. So after Wiz, Wiz Khalifa showed up throughout the first pitch, he was wearing a shirt that said, legalize it. The it, I am going to take a wild guess. He was referring to weed with that. And after the first pitch, he made the uh, universal sign of smoking weed by bringing his thumb and pointer finger to a tip, put it to his mouth as if he was uh, taking a little drag. And, um, and yeah. And, and obviously, you know, crowd loves it. MLB very much does not. Came out with a statement afterwards that said, marijuana, uh, is this a typo? Marijuana is, <laughs> is probated substance. No, it's not a probated substance. It's just probated substance. In all of our drug programs. Probated? Is that a word? <laughs> I've only heard of prohibited. Many questions. but um, they, Were they high when they typed this? They said, it's unfortunate this situation occurred. The pirates have informed us this should not have happened. And I want to ask, I just want to ask, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? <laughs> Were you expecting him to come out wearing a dare to keep kids off drugs shirt and be like, I am for safety and family and making right Yo, you decisions. You can be for weed and all of those things, just for the record. I'm, I totally agree. But I feel like Wiz Khalifa's not exactly known for that. <laughs> <laughs> Again. He seems pretty reckless in his marijuana usage. Uh, yeah. So it is a bit of a follow-up to what we were talking about last week because this Yahoo Sports article clears up that minor leaguers are not allowed to smoke weed. They will get suspended for it. But major leaguers can do it all they want. Which also makes this all the more confusing that it's not prohibited by MLB but the fact that someone was just straight repping it when they went out to throw the first pitch, that is what crossed the line. No, okay, so like what you said, what did you think was going to happen, number one, when you asked Wiz Khalifa to come out for you? And you, as the Pirates organization, you saw him wearing a shirt that says legalize it. And then as the MLB, you don't have a policy that says you can't smoke weed, so... I'm I'm guess I'm not sure like what he did that went against the MLB values. Well, and clearly like I'm going to assume or maybe not, but I would think that there is like some line of communication where the MLB if they would like to know would have some sort of idea of who's like throwing out these first pitches, you know? Like I mean, I'm sure that every team does not clear every person who's going to throw out the first pitch at their game, but you have to think that like someone associated with with the MLB at large organization knew that Wiz Khalifa was going to go and throw out the first pitch. Why would you not have the conversation beforehand and be like, so we have to talk about the elephant in the room with this guy. (laughs) It also just feels very weird to like upstage the pirates and like come out to a newspaper and be like, this was clearly not okay. Like what? So they came out to the, the Pittsburgh newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. They gave a statement, um, to that statement that I read was to the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. That's really strange. Yeah. I it feels like you're just kind of doing it to cover your ass, but like from what? I don't but like how many people are out there being like what an awful influence this Wiz Khalifa guy. He was totally fine before, but now that he brought it into the ballpark, <laughs> golly no. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tim Lincecum was smoking weed before every start. Yeah. And we were cool with it because it's cool. <laughs> Anyway, 
Don't do drugs. Yeah, don't do drugs. But that was uh that was funny. Um can you rank Wiz Khalifa's albums for me? Can I... you name more than one? Nope. <laughs> Does he have one? Yeah, he has to have more I... than one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, like, are we distinguishing between albums and mixtapes? Because they're two very different things. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. That's for our next podcast. Our music podcast. Episode 12, Baby's First Disagreement. (laughs) (laughs) We've really got into it on this one. (laughs) So uh, episode 12, uh, this next one up is a um, a highlight from episode 12 when you and I sort of disagreed about the future of pitcher usage and how much relievers would be used and how starters innings limits would be cut short. Um, So we, we hope that you take a side of the debate and let us know which side that you're on, either on Twitter or uh, or on Gmail at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. But yeah, I, I thought it was really funny that we we got into this argument the night before we recorded the show, and then we just like tried to hype ourselves up yeah, to like recreate it. it. <laughs> and it actually worked. Yeah. So uh... it, it comes amid the playoffs. That's when we were recording this, right? With a lot of weird ways that managers were utilizing their bullpens. And so we certainly took different stances on on the effects that we thought this might have. I don't know how many of these long reliever types there really are. Like, I think Andrew Miller and Chris Stavinsky are almost the exception. And if they had been able to be starters and still pitch at the level that they were at, then that's what they would be because then they would add more win probability to their team over the course of a year. We've sort of, I think personally, that we've reached that equilibrium, maybe not perfectly. I mean, you might see a couple a couple ticks more down in, you know, average starter length into the game or average amount of outs gotten by a starter or average pitches thrown by a starter right but i i think that 100 pitch mark is going to remain around the same for a limit that a starter can go and whether that comes now in the fifth inning or the sixth inning or the seventh inning or if someone's cruising i think pitchers are going for a lot more strikeouts so they're not making it as far into the game because they're throwing more pitches to try to get those strikeouts but to me this this type of bullpen use strategy would blow up in your face if you tried to do it over the course of a 162 game regular season. I I will admit that at least for now this might be limited to teams who have like a wealth of pitching, right? A team like the Indians or a team like the Yankees who can afford to use these types of or a team like the Astros who can afford to use these pitchers in these type of roles because they don't need them to be their third starter or whatever, right? Um, I mean, the Astros kind of do need them to be their third starter, right? The Astros don't have a great starting rotation. Yeah, but I think that we're still kind of seeing the value that... And again, I I agree with you that Andrew Miller may be the uh, outlier at one end of the spectrum, right? Not every team is going to accumulate a million Andrew Millers, right? (laughs) But I don't see the harm in... Uh, trying it out at least right i mean we saw what the dodgers did this year where they were run letting their starters pitch fewer innings because they were crafty with the dl and they were um you know maybe using up extra roster spots for pitchers or whatever and kenta maeda was pretty much capped at like five innings um there in the stretch run kenta maeda who was awesome in relief last night yeah um but like exactly i think that maybe you see teams trying different things out if you're like hey we have six good starting pitchers we're gonna convert this guy but who has six good starting pitchers besides the dodgers is my point 
okay, I guess. But if you have a prospect who doesn't pan out or something like that, why do you be like, I'm going to convert him to just like the our seventh inning guy? But and- doesn't that already happen? My See, my point is that like the Dodgers pushed it to its logical limits this season, in my view. Anything more, if you're having your starter go like only four innings, anything more at that point, you're really pushing your bullpen too far. And not many teams can amass enough relievers where they are still putting good enough pitchers out there for long enough stretches of time to win who these pitchers would not already be starters. But if if you have a four or five guy in your rotation who's like, say, average to below average. Okay. And you have a, you know, former prospect or whatever, or a good starting pitcher in your bullpen, obviously, and this is maybe limited to guys who used to be starters before, which most pitchers at this point usually were at one point or another. Why not stretch that guy out two or three innings and take some of the load off that pitcher and be like, hey, you were a former prospect. You used to throw 180 innings, but you weren't very good at it. We're going to shift you to the bullpen. You're going to throw 90, 100 innings this year, uh, add a couple miles per hour to your fastball, and really be that impact piece who can take some innings off our best starting pitchers and lessen the injury risk there. I mean, if you're shifting, you are making the argument that that bullpen piece is less valuable than a good starting pitcher. So why not use him to shift some of the injury risk off the pitcher and be like, you know, Syndergaard, you're awesome, but we want you going out there and throwing five innings and we're going to cap you at 80 pitches because we think this is better for your arm and then bring in Chad Green and to throw those two innings that you would have otherwise or those three innings you would have otherwise. Well, because with that, there are not that many former prospects. Like, I think what you're talking about is ideal, right? But I, I don't think that sweet spot that you're referring to is as big as maybe we think it is because of this postseason. Because we're seeing the eight best teams in the MLB with the, like eight of the best bullpens, right? So there's a there's such a concentration of relievers onto good teams because now with the way that they're being used in the postseason, good teams want to go get that reliever. That's why the Rockies trade for a guy like Pat Neshek, and that's why the Phillies even signed a guy like Pat Neshek because they knew they would trade him. They didn't sign him because they, that he was going to help their team win that year. They didn't want to win. So I think what you're saying is ideal in a way, but... I mean, the Mets are not finding relief pitchers who used to be starting pitchers who will be good over 100 innings. They're just not. I mean, can you name someone from the Mets bullpen who would be good over 100 innings any better than they were over 60 innings or 50 innings? No. So I, I think a lot of these teams don't but have— But is that, is that a fault on the strategy or is that a fault on, like, player evaluation? I don't know. Because they found a wealth of starting pitching. I mean, two or three years ago, uh, coming into the year, we were like this— team has the potential to have the best starting rotation in baseball if they can stay healthy, right? Yeah, so so what are you suggesting, though, that they take some of the starters and move them to the bullpen? Uh, maybe. I mean, why not do that with Robert Gesellman? But like, then who starts for the, who's their fifth starter? I don't know. Pick pick your league average guy. But So my point with that, though, is that they can't find that league average guy. That's what they wanted Gesellman to be. So, so then they're throwing out Chris Flexen, who would be another good candidate to do what you're talking about. But they still cannot find that fifth rotation guy. And so many teams across the league cannot find that guy. That's why you see so many teams with bad rotations. I mean, yes, I agree that the bad organizations are doing a good job, or the bad organizations are doing a bad job of evaluating some players. And and that's why you see 
the Astros and the Dodgers with a wealth of talent because they are good at evaluating talent and they know who to get, right? But it is the league is not egalitarian enough where enough teams can do what you're talking about so that it would change so that it would change a league-wide trend. And what I mean by that is that if the Mets decided to move Gasalman to the bullpen, it'd be great for the bullpen. The bullpen would do better. They moved Bartolo to the bullpen and he helped them out in 2015 somehow, right? And and they brought Syndergaard out of the bullpen and he made the bullpen stronger and he shut he shut the Dodgers down in a way that perhaps in a way that like Josh Smoker wouldn't have done had he been out there for them. Uh, sorry, Josh Smoker, we pick on you a lot during this <laughs> podcast. But at that point, then so you have four starters. So what are you going to do? Who is better in their in their organization to bring up than Robert Gesellman would be every five days, or Chris Flexen would be every five days, or Stephen Matz would be every five days? I guess what I'm saying is that then then you're asking your starter to go every more often. Is that what you're saying? To only have four starters? No, but if you're throwing out your fifth best starting pitcher on any given day, I'm not saying you're expecting to lose, but like you're okay if you lose that game if like your good starting pitchers do well and you win those, right? So if you say, you know what, this fifth this fifth day, we're, it's going to be a wash, but we're going to take the guy, the mediocre guy who would have pitched that fifth day. Robert Selman, whoever, we keep using him, and I don't know if he would fit this model. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't, right? But we get that guy and use him to bolster um, two or three of the other days and make those games even more of a quote-unquote sure thing than they would have been before. And you say, you know what, that fifth day, maybe it's a bullpen day. Maybe it's a day that we pay a little less attention to. But on those other days, we're going to have Noah Syndergaard go five innings and then we're going to have another former starter come out of the bullpen and fill in those other innings for him so again some more playoff content we i forget that the majority of like our episodes were during like yeah. while baseball was still happening so I... it's, it's very much shaded by everything that was going on then. recency bias for me just says that we've just been doing stupid shit in every segment for the entire time we've been doing this podcast and frankly most of our stuff has been stupid shit <laughs> um but this was very serious to us we got very upset about replay and just how we think that it's changing the game and certainly not for the better, as you will find out when you listen to us talk yeah. about it. It's just not very intuitive, but I just want to point out, make sure that you're listening very closely for Alex's most savage use of the F word in history. <laughs> it was upsetting. I mean, this came off the heels of a replay in the Cubs-Nationals game where I think it was like Jose Lobatone got picked off first or something like that, and it really changed I think, the outcome or the potential outcome of the game. And so we just got really into how bad we thought this all is. Yeah, we got our trousers all up in a knot. Yeah, we did. This is uh, this is like a pivotal move in the game, too, because there's two on. Um, I think Trey Turner's at the plate, right? Yeah, Trey Turner's at the plate because that was then the third out, and then the ninth inning was one, two, three. Turner yeah, like this, Harper. like this very much is a decision that changes, that potentially changes the outcome of the game. And so they review it and call him out because he came off the bag for a split second. I think it's fucking stupid, if I'm being completely honest. That's so, such a dumb way to, like, play the game, I think. And, and you pointed out that he was out. And, like, yes, he came off the bag. I think that's a dumb rule. I think he made it back to the bag first. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And I think that's 
the wrong way to be using replay. I think if you pop off the bag, it should have to be so obvious that the umpire could see it in real time, right? Like there's no way to see it in real time. And I saw something from Jesse Spector on Twitter where he was like, well, technically speaking, Jose Lo- the electrons from Jose Lobatone's foot were technically in the same area as the electrons of the base. So how specific are we going to get here? I agree with what you're saying. And I mean, I don't know how easily you can really legislate this out like with proper wording for the umpires in this replay situation without just not being able to replay it you know well it's like it's like you can you can and can't review like very specific and weird things in baseball so like why is this one of the things that you can review like i I mean it's very difficult to have replay and for replay not to make it to its logical conclusion which is you're just replaying inches and inches and inches and the cameras are going to keep getting better and there's going to be more and more cameras facing on every single robot umps (laughs) facing every single you know angle of the field and you cannot have replay and not have these split hair decisions i just don't i don't think those two are mutually exclusive because technically by the letter of the law by everything that we've established in baseball up until this point he's off the base so he's out but no one thinks that that's the spirit of the law and no one thinks even in the first place they talked about this on effectively wild but no one thinks these bases should be so high off the ground and so hard in the first place that it's impossible to slide onto it and maintain contact the whole time yeah no one understands how hard it is to slide on a hard surface and remain level enough so that you are touching something out in front of you that's so hard to do that's almost impossible to do yeah it is it's incredibly hard to do and you have to and you have all these like moving parts like oh just make sure that when you slide back feet first while you're making the split second decision of what you need to do don't raise your foot an inch too high otherwise an inch like a half a centimeter yeah honestly it's like I don't know. I feel like this is not how replay should be used. And frankly, like, it really made me upset. Like, I was just mad the rest of the game because I was like, this is a pivotal moment in the playoffs that completely, it very well could have changed the Nationals' season. But it's not even It's not even just that this was a pivotal moment. It's that every single pivotal moment, every single one, every moment that both fan bases are on their feet is a moment that goes to replay afterwards. Every single moment, unless it's a clear-cut home run or it's a two-run double or there's no play where it's close. Every close play where fans of the Cubs and the Nationals or fans of the Dodgers and the Cubs or fans of the Yankees and the Astros are like, oh, shit, that was close, like bang-bang play, you know? Bang-bang play, which is the most exciting play in baseball. You know, a double play that gets turned right at the last minute or a sweet tag that they apply at the last minute. Every single one goes to review, and I just can't take it. I really can't either. Baseball has an attention span issue, and they have addressed this so many times. And they keep saying, we want to speed the game up. We want younger viewers. We want all this. We want all that. Well, maybe don't stop the game for seven minutes after every single exciting play for the casual viewer. It just doesn't make any sense at all. No, it's... Yeah, you talk about those bang-bang plays, and it's like the replay reviews just completely suck the air out of everything. It's like, oh, I actually really do want to sit here for eight minutes watching 
um, a close play. Like if you first of all, if you want to talk about like whether or not replay should really be a thing, you have to at least shorten the amount of time they have to make these decisions in because it's outrageous that like the manager has to make a decision in 30 seconds whether or not to uh, review it. But then once it goes to New York, like there's just unlimited time. It's just however long it takes for them to replay it. It's like if you can't figure if the manager has to figure out in 30 seconds or, you know, the person in the clubhouse has to figure out within 30 seconds whether or not to review it. So should New York. You have to like make that call every close play. Just start reviewing it. But beyond that, I think replay is stupid. And I, I and I think that they should get rid of it. Like and you made agree. you've made the argument that like you only have it for home runs and I'm all for that. Did he hit it out? Did he not hit it out? That's, that's it. Because that's, that's impossible that's to see for an umpire on the field. Yeah, there was that play a few years back where the the home run just scraped the foul pole and it like knocked chipped the paint off a little bit. Like that is literally impossible to see for an umpire. But everything else plays on bases. Stupid tags like this. Neighborhood rule at second. It's useless. Everyone, the baseball players react because they know they should have been out. They know that the throw beat them there. They know that they beat the throw there. Anthony Rizzo did not point down and look up at the umpire and say, his foot popped off the bag. No. There's no fucking way to see that. No. It's insane. And they've been playing this game their whole life under the pretext that if the second baseman is in the neighborhood while he's turning the double play, you're fucking out. Yeah. You're out. Yeah. Just because the ball beat you there, you shouldn't have hit into a ground you shouldn't have hit a ground ball into a double play. It should not have happened. Replay is stupid. It's ruining the playoffs because they get an extra fucking challenge and they challenge everything because it could it could seriously help their team. Okay, from the same episode, uh this was episode thirteen that, that replay review rant, an epic one, I would say, came from. So from the same episode um, we had Russell Steinberg, who is an SB Nation college basketball blog manager. Um, he's a huge Yankees fan, so we had him on to discuss the Evil Empire, such and such. You or, know, this or was or the not so Evil Empire. Right? However, this was before all the Giancarlo shit, so it is back to being the Evil Empire. We'll have him on again at some point. Yeah, very briefly, it was not. <laughs> very briefly, it was like the OK Empire, <laughs> as OK as empires can be. Um, but anyway, so this is just Russ talking about. How he loves the players on the field, but he cannot stand the front office. Regardless of what their payroll is, regardless of what they're spending money on, the people in the Yankees front office are some of the worst humans alive. (laughs) Um, You saw that with the whole netting fiasco before they finally caved. You saw that with the moat. And with, I think it was Lon Trost saying vaguely racist things about fans who have never sat in premium seating. Like, oh boy. it's very clear that the people in the Yankees front office, probably minus Brian Cashman when he's not with his mistress, are just <laughs> awful people. Um, so the other thing is I have to view the Yankees organization and the Yankees team as two separate entities almost. Because right? yeah. I, I root for the guys on the field who are so likable from the manager all the way on down. And I root for those guys and whatever happens in the front office, I have to view as something entirely differently. Yeah. So, so my hope had been that after the election, when uh, Donald Trump, the New Yorker, who's friends with all of these guys was elected, (laughs) that he would just put them all in his cabinet and I would never have to see them with the Yankees again. And unfortunately that didn't happen. But maybe if the Yankees can come back and defeat the Astros and win the World Series, maybe only the front office will go to the White House for that visit, <laughs> and they just won't leave. 
They'll just stay there forever. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> they just get lost, like, roaming the halls. That's what I'm <laughs> banking on now. Like, Randy Levine and Lantrost um, and the Steinbrenners just go be, be oh, with the, the president. for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they all love Trump. That's fine. Go get, get out of my baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this segment from episode 14 is probably one of my favorite ones we've ever done. This is one of your favorites. This is my favorite. This is a fan favorite. Yeah, this, this one... is, I literally turned this in as part of a portfolio to a job application. <laughs> this was the very first installment of our dramatic reading series where we read the worst takes just from around baseball, on baseball. And on this one, we looked at an article in the New York Post about how Baseball has too many Yasiel Puig's. And we just want to play you the entire segment on this one because <laughs> it was it was too good to cut down. We you just have to appreciate it in its entirety. A New York Post column about the man, the myth, the legend, Yasiel Puig. Yeah, this is a yo, I'm a a hard Yasiel Puig stan. You know that. I've said it on the podcast before. Yes, the you... big, the world's biggest Yasiel Puig apologist. <laughs> as you an can a- do as no a, wrong. As an Ace fan, too. Like, whatever. Strange. Yes. I don't think Yasiel Puig can do any wrong. He should be on the Ace. Hot take. Yeah, why not? Get him. I'm here for it. Anyway. Um. But, yeah, anyway, so this was floating around Twitter the other day. A column by New York Post columnist Phil Mushnick. N- never heard of him. Sounds like a herb. That... <laughs> I've been watching too much Jesus Amiro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I just wanna I wanna read through this one for you. It's it's pretty short, so we're just gonna go top to bottom, word for word. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're the, just we're really mailing it at this point. We're just reading other people's. We're work. reading other people's work, but this, you know what? I, and here's what I want to say about this before we dive in. I think if you if you write a good take, you deserve to be praised for it, and if you write a bad take. You deserve to be ridiculed for it. Yep. If, if either one of us has a bad take on this show, email us, tweet us, tell us. Literally you, do anything. Literally anything. <laughs> Call us out. We're, Mail we're wrong. Us. We're dumb. Send us a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, show up at our apartment and like tell us. Um, you, you deserve to uh, be laughed at if you have a bad take. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So um, the, I would just like everyone to know I have not seen this column from our man's Herb Mushnick? Yeah. What was his name? Phil Mushnick. Phil, Phil Mushnick. <laughs> yeah. So, the so ti- this is pure reaction from me. The title of this column is Why Baseball Doesn't Need More Yasiel Puigs. <sighs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so he starts this one off with a uh, with a quote, and it's from Emo Phillips. Don't know who that is, but um, the quote is, They call me Mr. Baseball, not because I love the game, but because of all the stitches in my head. Funny quote, really don't know why it's relevant to the column. I think you just put a quote at the beginning to make yourself sound smart. Like you're like, I know something that someone said in the past, and I'm going to relate to something that I'm about to say now. For all my One Tree Hill fans out there, this is like in the OG days of One Tree Hill, the early seasons when my man <laughs> Lucas would read a quote from his favorite author before every episode and at the end of every, every episode. So, <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> 
If you were raised to love baseball and to recognize the smart, winning kind from everything less... This the... is already impressively racist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, top the to bottom headline, it is. The headline is literally they subbed out black people and wrote in Yasiel Puig. But oh, anyway, oh, it gets Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> the, the Dodgers' Yasiel Puig is insufferable. As the sport is diminished by professionals who disregard the basic act of running to first base as a matter of style, Puig, an incurable home plate poser... Often makes turning doubles and Home triples into singles appear effortless. Does he pretend to be a, a diamond and yeah. lay on the dirt? No, he poses as home plate. <laughs> yeah. Despite his conspicuous talent, Puig last season was rep, uh, remanded to the minors to get the point across that baseball, despite modern no-upside compromises, remains a team game. It didn't take. In the postseason, Puig continues to behave as if he's in the home run derby. Pause. That's like my ideal baseball game is everyone <laughs> thinks that they're in the home derby. Can you imagine how fun that would be? Yeah. Remember when Aaron Judge just hit a million home runs in the home run derby and everyone was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Aaron Judge was trending worldwide on Twitter. Baseball was actually relevant, fun, and young. Yeah. I think God, I would hate that. Batters should start bat flipping on strikeouts. I don't even care. I'm so down. Just everything. Just make it like Korean baseball. <laughs> uh, he even seems to relish his high-risk flamboyant foolishness despite frequent backfires. Yet some are good with that, or at least pretend to be, in the shallow hope of being heard or read as avant-garde. I think Yasiel Puig is cool because I just really want to be a hipster about it. And it's like alternative to like fun. This is like old man yelling at clouds. Oh, this is like, like peak <laughs> levels. This is like cream of the crop. Just I had nothing better to do on my Thursday afternoon than just Let's be real. Mad. He wrote this on a, like a Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, dude. He's avant-garde. Yeah. He's selling his paintings on the street. Yo, he really is. <laughs> Liking Puig is just, it's the underground, man. You just you just don't get it. Some people don't get it. Liking liking Puig is like liking a different Nutramilk Hotel album than From the Airplane Over the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll keep going. We'll speed through this. Um, Wednesday's- In the Airplane Over the Sea. That was a mistake. <laughs> Let the record show. I did not fuck it up. He knows. <laughs> Wednesday's topic on Colin Cowherd's FS1 show was, does baseball need more personalities like Yasiel Puig? And then this is the author again. Old man yelling at Cloud cites other old men yelling at Cloud. More? How many games does, quote, personality win? (laughs) Why not ask, does baseball need more players who can't be bothered to run to first, even in the biggest games? Or, does MLB need more players who'd rather show off for TV cameras than play winning baseball? I just want to p- point out that he does both. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I don't, like give a, I don't give a shit what Yasiel Puig does because he's good. Yeah, he is good. He's sitting at like 400 in the playoffs. He, if he performs like this in the World Series, will win World Series MVP. And I just want to say, living in a world with Trump as president and Yasiel Puig as World Series MVP, <laughs> it's just literally, it's all you need to know. <laughs> It is all you need to know about our society right now. Uh, Why would anyone who knows good from bad, right from wrong, even throw out such a question? Ready for this? I don't know if I am. Inspired by immodest adult fools, little leaguers now pose at home, God forbid, bat flipping, risking something for nothing. Whoa. 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 See, what he did there was use two words that ended in the same word. Yeah. Yo, uh, it's like an I, echo effect, you know? The demise... He learned that in uh, Journalistic Inquiry. The de- de- 
I, I, I promise you the demise of America is going to come from 10-year-olds standing in front of the mirror practicing their bat flips. That's how it starts. Slippery slope. Yeah. What else are they going to start flipping? Uh, cultural norms? Whoa. Middle fingers in football stadiums? Stop. Ooh, <laughs> don't, even, don't even raise that. <laughs> this, is just, this is just bad. And there are a few more paragraphs. And he, I'm not even going to. Yeah, please spare us. Wait, just read the kicker. Well, he he references a time when Jason Wirth was being interviewed um, after a game, and it was broadcast on the screen in the ballpark. And he like, yeah, I remember. He shouted some obscenities into the microphone, and our our guy Musk Chimp or or You're just or, confusing him with Brent Muschimp. <laughs> <laughs> this is slander, oh, and I will not tolerate it. Mushnick, Mushnick. Yeah, um, he like he quotes some ESPN uh, host Molly Karam who declared I Molly love Karam it. she's who, dating Jalen Rose who de- shout out to them who love de- is real declared I love it and then he ends it with yes such interviews would make great companion pieces to quote more personalities like Yasiel Puig more stitches anyone I don't get that I don't either who's getting stitches well it was a reference to the quote at the beginning well I get that part but like so the stitches in the head are because he's playing a dumb game because his head is a baseball. But for some reason, if you're playing baseball... It's like that meme of that lady doing math. <laughs> I just can't <laughs> compute it. It's bad for you to have a, ba- a baseball. Maybe he's saying that Yasiel Puig needs to get beaned and then he'll have the marks of the stitches on his body somewhere. Yeah. More stitches, anyone? More stitches, anyone? Yeah, I wonder how Mr. That's Met- gonna be our new I wonder how line. Mr. Met feels about D- that. Yeah. This is fuck that. That's hey, this that's is slanderous. No, this is more than slanderous. This is <laughs> this is a hate crime <laughs> to mascots with stitches on their costume. <laughs> Bruh, come on. This is just bad. This is like this is the type of column that someone writes like after he's first called up and gets really upset. You're like five years into Yasiel Puig's career and now you're getting mad about it that he's good going to the World Series. Imagine sitting up at night. Thinking about these words, I want, and then putting them down on paper. Imagine watching the NLCS, seeing Yasiel Puig stick his tongue out at the camera and being like, "Oh my goodness, I can't let my kids see this." <laughs> are, are you kidding me? Yo, we're like, uh, we're like one dugout pan to Yasiel Puig sticking his tongue out from some New York Post columnist writing about how Yasiel Puig is oversexualizing baseball. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good um, lord. Uh, my counter to this is baseball actually does need more Yasiel Puigs. Yeah. They could do with a few more. Yeah. I'm into it. And a few less Brian McCanns. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Although, shout out to Brian McCann coming through clutch beating the Yankees. Fuck the Yankees. Yeah, true. 27 rings, more like 27 Ks for Aaron Judge. That's what I said, boy. So, uh, Phil Mushnick. Mushnick. Mishnick. If you're listening... Do better. <laughs> That's it. That's all we have to say. Um, all right, episode 17. <laughs> the title of episode 17 is Stage Dives, Bowling, and Theories on Evolution. Yeah, this was a weird one, folks. <laughs> so if that doesn't tell you a little bit about what was going to be in the episode, it's Stage Dives, Bowling, and Theories on Evolution. We yep. literally talked about those three things, and somehow they were all related to baseball that week. Yep. That's why we love this game. So in this segment, we get a little bit into the very bizarre story about Josh Beckett confusing what the fuck a stage dive actually is and just tackling a country singer. Um, and then we uh, touch a little bit about very right-wing conservative Aubrey Huff and his Twitter presence. Yeah, he he had an entertaining 
Twitter stream of consciousness about um, his theories on evolution. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, it was pretty convincing. I mean, he just debunked UC Berkeley. He debunked science. And it all started with the discovery of a rat. So... <laughs> So we, we got to talk about... Elsewhere our, in Strange Baseball. <laughs> we got to talk about our boy, Josh Beckett. Josh. Josh, Josh, Josh. He... Uh, this is the Sports Illustrated headline. Report. Two-time World Series champion Josh Beckett arrested for tackling singer at open mic night. Party foul. Yeah. Yo, <laughs> check out this... Check out this just image of him diving <laughs> forward like yeah. this was like parallel to the ground yeah this was not he ran up and like gave the guy a shove or whatever he like <laughs> was airborne uh yeah he, like ray lewis running down the middle like, <laughs> laid this dude out <laughs> so he was tackling a country singer so i kind of get it um I'm with him spiritually yeah he was at a texas country club and was intoxicated as one does when you're at a texas country club and there are really no details as to why he did this. Um, he It says he admitted to stage diving, <laughs> but that's not what stage diving is, bro. You don't dive onto the stage. <laughs> he got it mixed up, right? <laughs> he was so drunk that he was like, stage diving? This is it. And he just dove at the stage. Beckett's lawyer told TMZ that he was engaging in horseplay. First of all, bad Texas pun. Second of, <laughs> second of all, horseplay? He tore the dude's rotator cuff. Yeah, no, I was just about to say that. Here's what it says. TMZ said police were called and that the singer suffered serious injuries, including a torn rotator cuff. What? What the hell? How do you even lay someone out so hard that they tear their <laughs> rotator cuff? What happened? Yeah. I need video of this. Is there a video of it? No, it's just pictures. <laughs> like mid-flight. <laughs> well, it's definitely a still. Okay, the photo at the top of this picture definitely is still from a video. Why would someone be standing there waiting to take a picture of this happening? Unless they knew unless Josh Beckett. <laughs> so they're like, check this out. <laughs> Yo, dude, get your camera ready. <laughs> Start taking that live photo. <laughs> but yeah, we, we'll link to this as we do to everything that we talk about because all this podcast is just a collection of shit that we saw throughout the week. Uh, you want to take a bet on what he was eating while at the country club? Because I'm going to guess it was fried chicken and beers. And beers? Yep. <laughs> yep. Come on. Come on. My boy Bobby Valentine was there. Yep. <laughs> He's trying to get involved. Where was Papelbon? John Lackey. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one who took the photo. <laughs> Papelbon took the photo. Yeah. Anyway. Josh Beckett, come on. What are you doing, man? But also, depends on what the country singer was saying slash doing slash who the country singer was. Yeah, this is a this is a bold move, but I I don't even disagree with it. Yeah, although tearing someone else's rotator cuff is rough. Yeah, especially as a pitcher, like that's messed you, up. you know what that is. Yeah, you know how to, Yeah, <laughs> you know what it's like to go through that. Probably equally as weird. Yeah, is this next story that we're gonna talk about? Aubrey Huff. Aubrey Huff. What are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> this one, I just I just can't really get over. Um, so Aubrey Huff tweeted uh, a few days ago. It's a series of tweets. So the first one reads, read an article in AOL News this morning where scientists have concluded we were evolved from rats? Exclamation mark, question mark. It's amazing how stupid really smart people can be. Don't be deceived. The truth is wait, in the wait, Bible. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is there a space between the last word and the exclamation mark and question mark? Because it's a very old, angry white person thing to do. What? To, to finish the sentence and then to put a bunch of spaces and then the punctuation. Oh. Did he do that? <laughs> no, he didn't, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, he was just truly perplexed at the rats. I'm surprised there's no, like, ellipsis in this tweet somewhere. It's also an angry old white person thing to do. Yeah. So I'm reading from a Deadspin article, and the article points out that it's very clear he only read the headline because it doesn't talk about rats. It's a rat-like creature, but it's a mammal that's not a rat. And, uh, and it just kind of talks about that they are the earliest known ancestors of most modern mammals. So... Just a rat-like creature? Yes. We all came from rats. A rat-like creature related to us long time ago. Again, not like our uncle or something. <laughs> not like was around 60 years ago, and in that span, here we are. <laughs> but no, Aubrey Huff, he's not done, man. If the evidence is there for evolution, <laughs> where are the fossils of all the creatures that were supposedly slowly over millions of years evolving into us? They're there isn't any. And why do we still have monkeys? I like how you laughed because he messed up the grammar. You're not <laughs> laughing at what he's making the point. <laughs> you paused the grammar part. <laughs> You're so annoying. <laughs> and why do we still have monkeys if we evolved from them? This is so true. No one's talking about this. No, actually, this is like when you've never been to a museum. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Can I just ask, where is Abihaf from? Is it Texas? I'm looking it up right now. I'm going to say North Carolina. It's Ohio. Ah, yeah. I want to be South. <laughs> so there's there's a lot more. He talks about saying there are a lot of people who strongly agree with, with, the, John Kasich. with the evolution, <laughs> quote out. unquote, theory, but, look in, but then really looked into real evidence that the mainstream scientists and world dare not mean, touch. I think you mean lamestream scientists. Yeah, that's honestly so true. So basically, I don't know if you know this, but Aubrey Huff, he's read the Bible. He has read the Bible, and the truth is there. And really, we're all just sheeple. We need to open our eyes. <laughs> I like how um, I like this is like the weird like alt-right left turn that the Kyrie Irving flat earth theory took. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Aubrey Huff being like, evolution's not real. It's just God. Yeah. No such thing. And um, meanwhile, Kyrie Irving was just like, yeah, I've never seen a picture of the real, the real round earth. Yeah. But yeah, Aubrey so- Huff was like, I'm going to take... A very, 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 very strict religious view of this. Um, Keith Law, the ESPN reporter, uh, tweeted him a couple studies about, hey, <laughs> I saw this. evolution is real. Aubrey Huff, no, he's got that one in lockdown, too. Guess what his defense is? You lost me when you tweeted a study from Berkeley. <laughs> Unless, of course, we're talking about protesting, which they know a lot about. True. I'll take God's word over an overpriced university any day of the week. Ugh. Ugh. Where's it's the like lie? cream of the crop. <laughs> I'm using that line from now on. I'll take God's word over and over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you fail your final. Yeah. And you're just like, listen, professor, God told me that this was the right answer. So I'll take God's word over your stupid ass F grade any day of the week. Yeah. Oh, you say I have, quote, student loans. Uh, God says I'm debt free. So. <laughs> yeah. New York University is waiting for those checks. And we're just like, um, listen, God told me that I could come here. And so, therefore, I'm just entitled to that. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a useful argument. I don't know why. Why don't we make this argument more often? Um, this is the last one. I know we're dragging this out, but one user tweeted jokingly, um, Aubrey, do you believe in Imagine Dragons? Referring to, of course, the popular musical act. What a weird, <laughs> what a very strange thing to ask him. I know. I think, they, I think he was trying to pull his leg or just get something out of him. And guess what? It worked. He replies, I'm shocked that it works. Actually, dragons aren't imagined. They are nothing but dinosaurs that the ancient civilizations seen, ancient civilizations seen all over the planet. The term dinosaur was coined in 1841. So, yes, 
I do believe in dragons and dinosaurs. Wait, what? He believes in dragons and dinosaurs, but he doesn't believe in old rats? Yo, Mike Drop. <laughs> Aubrey is out. This is like when you watch Game of Thrones and read the Bible. Yeah. Those are the only two things you do. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, episode 18. This was the biggest thing we have ever done, or or had done up until this point. The, this is our, our big project. This was our big project. This is one of the first things I think we talked about when we started doing this podcast. Yeah. And this was the one, the only, the all-gentrification team. Those guys that you know you could find uh, drinking PBRs down at a bar right down the street from us. Yeah, if someone is making an early candidacy for the 2018 all-gentrification team, make sure you put them on our radar because this is going to be our corner. We're going to own this corner of the internet, gentrification, baseball, the, that overlap, that Venn diagram, that is us. We're right there in the middle, tipping pitches pod. I mean, we know both things very well, so we're just <laughs> going to give you a little taste of it. Uh, you and I both just came up with a handful of players who we thought fit the bill the best. It was largely due to their facial hair, um, but we talked about some other things as well. So you should definitely go back and, and read the whole post on that as well. Yeah, follow along the blog post. That made for a lot better listening. Um, but yeah, I loved this, and we're just going to give you a taste. The first player chosen, and that was your first choice, Daniel Norris. This first guy, you will absolutely see walking down the streets of Bushwick. Hands down, no doubt about it, Daniel Norris. Uh, he is a, if you don't know, he's a reliever. Or he's, he's my a, favorite. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, he's a pitcher for the Tigers. Um, he came over from the Toronto Blue Jays and was like a top prospect over there. It was like one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball. But he came to the national focus in an ESPN profile of him that talked about how he was living out of his van. Literally, like, in the parking lot of a Walmart, he would just fucking live out of his van and, like, make breakfast there and do pull-ups in the parking lot. Of course this was written by Eli Saslow. Yeah. Um, And just, we'll use this picture for the blog post, but it's literally... (laughs) Like him, he's a frying pan. He's holding his frying pan, <laughs> like a VW van. <laughs> like beer cans in the back, and like it's literally a VW. And there's like a sleeping bag in here. I don't know, man. A pretty it's... safe bet for whether someone could make this team is how blurred is the line between being in a punk rock band and being an MLB? <laughs> yeah, uh, he's got the he's got the requisite scruff going too. You could definitely see this guy hanging out at a at like a punk club in Brooklyn. Yeah, or even just, like, one of those bars on our street. Like, he's just standing outside having a cigarette. Yeah. But he hand-rolled the cigarette. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he um he moved to Brooklyn because uh, he just liked the... That's where all, like, the cool people were, man. And, like, sometimes he goes over to Williamsburg a little bit and uh, and shops around at, like, a record store. Yeah, but only, like, the DIY record stores. Yeah. Not, like, like the labels. Oh, God, no. I don't know. The records have to have, like... You know, it has to be like a little roughed up around the edges of the the cover and everything. Yeah, he absolutely only drinks PBR. That is his. That is the one beer he will drink, and he will not stray from it. You're saying this to people. I guess you 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 drink your fancy ass IPAs, but I'm I'm perfectly happy just buying the cheap PBR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong, I am too. But um, that's usually the party move. Yeah, but Daniel and no- Alex show up to a party an hour and a half late with thirty PBRs. <laughs> hey, we're here. Sorry, we're late. <laughs> yeah. So. 
This is, he's literally, they call him the van man. He's the van man. Daniel Norris, the van man, definitely, definitely lives in Bushwick. Colin, van man, <laughs> lives in Bushwick. Okay. It's funny that episode 19, which was the follow-up to the All Gentrification Team, was like one of our more serious episodes when we interviewed Jeff Perlman. Yeah. We talked a lot about like writing and, and the process of it and writing novels and big personalities and that kind of thing. So it was one of our more serious journalistic efforts compared to the All Gentrification Team, which was one of our more serious bullshit efforts. <laughs> um and so that's this next segment that we're going to play for you. It's a bit of from that interview with Perlman um, when he's talking about one of his upcoming books, the USFL book, um, and just why he was so interested in it. And I thought you asked a really good question just in prompting him to give this response. So, um, yeah, enjoy, enjoy this interview. So the USFL was my dream sports book for years and years and years. And I was at USFL, I was 83 to 85. So I was 11 years old when this thing came along. And I don't know, you guys have probably felt this way too. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you know, I like when you're a kid and things seem a million times larger than they do when you're an adult. You know, you go to Rockefeller Center in New York City, you see the Christmas tree through an 11 year old's eyes. It is a million times larger than it is when you're like 20. You're like, oh, it's just a really big treat. Um, you know what I mean? Like sports is like that, right? Yeah, definitely. I see. Right. These guys are like, you see Albert Pujols when you're a kid and you're like, oh my God, Albert Pujols. Then you see him as an adult and you're like, oh, this guy's kind of a dick actually. He's not even that interesting. <laughs> um, that's the truth, by the way. But um, so the USFL to me, when I was a kid, it was like just this colorful, bountiful, huge names, awesome uniforms, the gunslingers and the express and you know, they're playing in San Antonio and the, and the Chicago Blitz. And I just remember being like, holy shit, I love this league. I love this league. And I always wanted to write about it, always, because I thought it was fascinating. It was a challenge to the NFL and it was spring football. And Donald Trump kind of screwed it over. And the, but just the whole thing is riveting. And for years, I wanted to write the book. And for years, my agent and different people would tell me, nobody wants this book. I, over and over, nobody wants a USFL book. So finally, when I pitched the Favre book, I actually, I, I wasn't that, I loved it. I ended up loving the Favre experience, but it wasn't a book I wanted to write. I wanted to get a USFL deal. So I came up with an idea that had marquee value, Brett Favre, and pitched it with the USFL book. Um, and Hogg Mifflin, which is my publisher for the books, agreed to, they gave me like not good money for USFL and pretty good money for Favre. Because all I wanted to do was write that USFL book. So it's purely a labor of love. It was my favorite book I've ever written on. It was an absolute joy. It's not coming out until next year, but um, I freaking loved it. Love it. Love everything about it. Yeah, so episode 20 was really action-packed. We had all the Otani stuff. There was a lot of Giancarlo stuff breaking, but we got the chance to talk to Lindsay Adler, who writes for Deadspin, and we talked to her about... Um, a recent piece that she wrote, we talked to her about weird baseball. I don't know. This was a really fun interview, I think. And she came into the studio for us. Yeah, which, which was, was awesome. Which was really great. <laughs> um, but the, the It saved pro- us the technical difficulties aspect. Yeah, seriously. But the segment you're going to hear from is talking about her, a little bit about her fandom as a Giants fan and specifically um, about one... T 
Timmy Lincecum. <laughs> I like how she called him Timmy. I know. I think what I've always liked about Timmy, because he is the player that I've felt that, you know, if he had taken a slightly divergent path, we probably would have wound up at a house party together. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like I look at a guy like Mike Trout and I'm like, what do I have in common with Mike Trout? I look at a guy like Tim Linscombe and I'm like, cool, like a super underachiever. Like, what don't loser. I have in common like, with him? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just think that's really hard hard to find and like a professional athlete yeah. yeah he always did seem really relatable like he sort of hated like all the spotlight that was thrust on him like he can't really go anywhere in the san francisco area without everyone noticing him because he's like this wiry long-haired really recognizable like pale as a ghost kind of guy yeah so yeah he went against the mole and after like the backlash when when it came out that he was like smoking weed or whatever mm-hmm. i was like i only like you more now. <laughs> right like you are you are every like 21 year old who like is watching you right now (laughs) i remember after the 2014 the day after the 2012 world series i was like shopping or something and i think i was like walking through bloomingdale's i think i was like going to get some makeup or whatever and i walked through the shoe department and tim lincecum was sitting there the (laughs) day after they got back from detroit (laughs) and he like had like i think he was wearing like a bape hoodie and it was like up over his head, and I was like, "Dog, I could, I could recognize you anywhere." And the thing I remember is like, you know, obviously I didn't say anything. Like I'm gonna give the guy his piece, but I, what I remember is that he was wearing the newest looking jeans I've ever seen. <laughs> it was like he had just taken the like size sticker off of them. It was like his shoes were really new, his jeans were really new. I was like, wow, you are so lame. <laughs> 2012 World Series, big spender after yeah, that. Yeah, like, like Tim He's like, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go clothes shopping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm gonna buy a new pair of sneakers. <laughs> That's literally I me. I just thought it was so weird. I was yeah. like, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this first segment that you'll hear as a highlight from that Fernando interview um, is the part from the first half when he was talking about MLB practices in South America when it, as it relates to scouting and coaching and all the crazy shit that goes on down there that it really just blew us away the way he was talking about it um, and just stuff that you wouldn't think to you wouldn't even think to think about um, if that makes sense um, and so yeah this first bit is about him talking about South America and the way that clubs operate down there. Up until around the time I got into baseball, Major League Baseball and franchises, they operated horribly in Latin America. I mean, there are guys that I played with that, you know, you meet a guy who's 6'5 and throws 97 and he signed for $12,000. And then you meet a guy who is, you know, went to a good four-year school protected in a great SEC lineup, puts up some pretty good numbers, looks the part, hey, here's a million dollars, you're a first rounder now. So after a couple of years, that, that, that investment still is a, is a thing. If you give a guy a million dollars, it's not that he becomes, you know, his 220 batting average in a year. After a while, it's definitely true. Um, but, you know, there are some guys that 
you know, they give him a look at Jose Altuve. I don't think that he got an incredible amount, but I think after a point you realize, wow, there's something incredible we have on our hands here. We have to treat this guy like, you know, sort of like a first rounder. But a lot of that, you know, definitely the way that we operate in Latin America is a lot better today than it was before. I got a chance to work at the um, international showcase of, of prospects, basically the best 50 prospects uh, that are amateurs they come and we have a workout for them where all the teams can look at them. And before there was all this wheeling and dealing before, if we are all scouts and we go to the Dominican Republic, you know, flying the, the California angels flag, we are going to be rewarded for getting more on our dollar. So we will do anything to get more on our dollar in the past. What that involved is, you know, with, with Buscones being sort of this, it's like it's sort of like an I can think about it like, um, you know, governments uh, using different intelligence people and things like that sort of in the past. You know, um, the government goes in and, you know, they employ some foreign mercenaries to do some things. It's a lot of the same the same ideas. And, you know, Buscones were doing things like, hey, make sure like don't leave your house for a while. Uh, I really don't want you to practice and have other teams see you because that's going to drive the price up. There are so many things going on. The stories that I know alone are awful and, and they, you know, are mostly in the 2000s. So if you go further back, I mean, some of the things are, are horrible. And there are things that happened to me that should just give you a bit of an idea. One of them, I, I forget where it's like, it's like all of the, the writing that I've done, a lot of it just like bleeds into one story. But, you know, I had a, a guy from from a team tell me not to go like he made up a workout so that I wouldn't go work out for another team he made it up it didn't exist and he admitted that it didn't exist there's all sorts of stuff that goes on and so you know just like everything uh the world is getting is becoming in many respects a better place because there are you know cell phone cameras everywhere and there's more people interested in the plight of more people so this you know the plight of the the athlete is is better than it ever has been and you know i expect it to get better and last but not least in the second half of the fernando interview i just had to ask him what do guys talk about when they get down there to first base I, it's one of those things that you always think about as a kid, and you always just wish you could be a fly on the wall in those conversations. We went from being like legit interviewers um, for like the first half of this podcast to like the last probably I would say like twenty to twenty five minutes. We really just like our little league selves came out. Yeah, it was just like I gotta know, man. I wanted to know this since I was six. <laughs> please, 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 please tell the stories. Tell the stories. Yeah, he has some really funny anecdotes just about some times that he got down to first base and the run-ins he had with different characters down there. Yeah, so. I was really hoping he would have a Joey Votto story, but I guess like the primes of their careers didn't really match up. So yeah, but he uh, he got some good content for us on this anyway. So we hope you enjoy. <laughs> So we're running a bit long here, yeah. so we'll let you go in a minute. But just because we're kind of on this topic of like what fans kind of want to hear and not taking this too seriously, I got to ask about something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which I know is something that I think every fan at one point or another has thought to themselves. And that is, what on earth are those guys talking about when the runner gets down to first base? And which, because everyone acts like they are best <laughs> friends. It's like you get down there. 
And I don't know if you are asking about what the hell is the pitcher doing for this <laughs> ritual, but I'm, I'm, or maybe it's an unspoken thing that's just like that does not leave uh, first base. But I'm, I have always been curious. <laughs> what brilliant thing is Joey Votto saying okay, to you yeah. as you run first? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say a thing about myself. My lip reading skills are incredible. I don't know how they got so good, but they're incredible. Practice. Uh, I watch baseball without the sound on. I listen to music. It helps, actually. You, it's difficult to listen to the sound of an announcer and like do some lip reading. You can find out a lot. Two stories <laughs> that I'll tell about being at first base. My favorite player to ever... Three stories I'll tell. My favorite player to ever meet at first base is this guy named Tommy Everidge. I hope you're listening out there, Tommy. Tommy Tommy's was like one of our so nice. He's just like so nice and sweet. And like I feel like by the time and like when I was playing against Tommy, it was in the California League, and I led the minor leagues and run scored that year. So I was always on first base at least for a little while. And so I would run into Tommy quite a bit. And like I feel like by the seventh inning, we were talking about relationships and stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just having an absolute grand old time. Um. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Euclid. Oh I get to first base and Kevin Euclid. I was like, this is the friendliest man I've ever met. Why is he being so friendly? And I'm like, is he distracting me? Cause it's working. <laughs> I want to be friends with Kevin Euclid. You know, I'm a rookie and he's Kevin Euclid. Like I want to ask him so many questions. I don't have that much time to ask him these questions. So that was like a really good time. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm like, he's distracting me or something. He like knows I want to steal. World Series. I didn't play in the World Series except for when, uh, very casually, uh, Joe Madden in the top of the ninth inning of game five, he said, hey, you should go run for Navi. And I'm like, okay, it's a World Series. Um, <laughs> getting ready to go in there. And, and I said to him, I was like, do you want me to steal? <laughs> like, just like that. He's like, yeah. Duh. Like he didn't say duh, but like he looked at me like I was like, of course I want you to steal. I know, yeah. Joe, <laughs> you know, that Joe Madden look comes I, across quite often on TV. And my thinking is just like, but Joe, everybody's gonna know. You know? <laughs> so anyway, like, you're run, fast for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I trot, I trot out there, and Ryan Howard's there, and Ryan Howard is just being suspiciously friendly, and I'm like, he's trying to distract me. <laughs> there's so much time to talk like if he wants to be friends we, he could text me he can get my number <laughs> he could just meet me at the you know after the game he was absolutely trying I think Damn near to distract me <laughs> to distract me but it was Ryan Howard so like I couldn't ignore him that would just be rude I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> so I was like so I'm like trying to take my lead like look at the sign like do I'm trying to do I thought I was doing a million things at once like I thought I was gonna pass out because I was still trying to like be friendly to Ryan Howard like I think that's what he was doing so there's a lot of that going on but also too Remember, even in a team sport like soccer, you could acknowledge that a player on your team is an insane person. And baseball's not that much of a team sport, and especially when it comes to like the, you know, the pitchers and the position players, cats and dogs, it's like the eternal fight in baseball. So a lot of the time when the guy gets to first base, they're just talking about the pitcher and like what's, what's going on with him today or whatever. You know, there are some first basemen that they're just like, 
they're such hitters. Like they don't give a shit. Like they don't they don't care that their team like that you just gave up a hit that may lead to a run. You know, like you get there and just like nice hit, man. You're looking great. Like, like, <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of that. Like who that that swing is looking bueno, dude. Like there's a lot of that going on. So much of that going on. But there's a lot of just talking about like weird stuff that happened in the game because weird things happen in the game and and they get kind of like covered covered up like somebody like you know like oh man like um you know when somebody does something crazy and like you think something might happen like problem guys on teams that just cause all sorts of problems so there's a lot of talking about that but it's it's um you can do a lot of lip reading uh but it can be almost everything there are some guys that are taught you know they're talkers and then other guys that like they just ne they'd never even look at you They'd just slap a hard tag on you, throw it back. They'd never even acknowledge you. You know, they're like really in football mode. Like, I hate you. I hate you. We're not friends. Um, if you've taken the time to listen to the highlights of Tipping Pitches 2017, we want to thank you. Um, it's been a lot of fun doing this podcast and we hope that it's been a lot of fun for you listening to it. And especially this, this little recap that we did for y'all, this was mostly a labor of love, <laughs> I think, <laughs> because it was fun for us to go back and listen to the old segments and just see, you know, from those first couple episodes where we were just like, baseball is a cool sport that we like. <laughs> yeah. We were going through the archives on this one, d dusting <laughs> off the, uh, the first few episodes. Dusting and, off and really the old taking... Wiz Khalifa. Yes, and... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, uh, the all asshole team will we'll live in infamy. But... If you had to choose one, you'll listen to one tipping pitches segment for the rest of your life. If you're on a desert Island. Which one are you choosing? Gun to your head. Honestly, the Puig one was really the most fun. It's got to be that, Puig. That we did. It's got to be Puig. That was my favorite one. That was just so fun to go through. It's just because, like, you can't make that stuff up. You can't make up the bad takes that these old white dudes that work for The Post have. All We had such great guests, and we thank them from the bottom of our hearts. But, like... <laughs> but, the, but the fun stuff was just making fun of stupid <laughs> shit. We're talking about the podcast like it's dying. It's really just... This was just a highlight of what we've done so far. We are going to be back and stronger than ever in the new year. So we hope that you continue to listen and, you know, give us some feedback, some rates some reviews on itunes um if you feel so inclined and you are in the holiday mood yeah. <laughs> but no but it really has been a fun ride thus far and like bobby said at the beginning of this we never thought we would get this far like <laughs> if you had given me odds on getting to december the end of december doing this i would have put them what maybe 10 percent chance so it's been a really fun year um and thanks y'all for coming along with us on this ride we will uh and we'll see you with more great stuff in 2018. Yeah, uh, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. You know, learn English while you're also trying to learn to hit the curveball. Yeah, and it really... Oh, that, was, ooh, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it really... <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs>